Good morning. Can you hear me? Um, good morning. My name is Dan Kihanya. Um, if you'd like to follow along with the scripture reading this morning, now's the time to get out your Bibles or Bible apps or smartphones, tablets, whatever you have, and turn to the book of Romans. We'll be reading from chapter 11, verse 32, through chapter 12, verse 2. 11, 32, through 12, 2. For God has bound all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become a counselor? Or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him... Be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. When I was making some announcements earlier, um, some of you were not here, so I want to do that, and I want to add one more announcement Uh, As you know, the Seahawks are playing right now. And if you're keeping track with the game, please don't spoil the game for anybody else that's here and uh, hoping to watch it when the service is over. So keep your excitement or disappointments to yourselves. That would be much appreciated. And if the Seahawks win today, they're going to play the 49ers next week at at 12 o'clock. And so we're going to engage the culture and love on the city and on you all by pulling up the service time to 9.30 a.m. next week if the Seahawks win today. And your job will be to remember that and also to tell as many people as you know. You know, they say in church, the gossip spreads faster than the gospel. So spread that news and uh, and we'll uh, communicate as much as we can as as well. Uh, My... My last announcement is I forgot to mention that the men's retreat is coming up, and this is your last chance to sign up for the men's retreat. Um, there's information about that in your bulletins, so please go ahead and do that. I'm, it's my first retreat with the men of this church, and I'm looking forward to engaging with a smaller group of people and uh, sort of get to know a lot of you a lot better. So that's uh, in your bulletins. Okay, timer start. Here we go. What I want to do for the next several weeks is to start a new series, building on the series that we've called The Gospel. We're going to call this new series, Embodying the Gospel. And I want to talk about the healthy functioning of the church body. What does it look like? When a group of people come together who say they love Jesus, 
They really like the gospel. It's good news to them. And now they want to be a community together. I think even if I just say that much, you realize that being together is a lot different than being alone. It brings up a lot more complexity. Being together in the same room raises the level of anxiety in the room. We're all of a sudden not just aware of other people, but more aware of ourselves. Self-consciousness even goes up. And how to function in a happy and healthy way as a church, that's not easy to do. It takes some science. It takes some art to embody the gospel. And I don't want to limit it to just being a church. I think being a family, being a society, being a city, being a a working group, any kind of group that comes together that's more than one, certain dynamics come into play. And so we want to spend the next several weeks talking about that. What I want to do today and next week is to initiate, sort of introduce the series by asking mostly a bunch of questions and then laying down a basis on which we're going to build the rest of the series. So we're not going to get a lot of answers today and next week, but we're going to be asking a bunch of questions together, laying the groundwork for some of the practical uh, answers that we're going to engage together. I think if I can predict the future, what you are going to experience is that this is one of the most This is going to be one of the most practical uh, sermon series you will have ever heard. Uh, It is, for me, something that I think about on a daily basis. It is how the gospel comes alive to me through the content of what we'll discuss. And that will take us all the way to Palm Sunday, uh, through Lent to Palm Sunday, and then Easter. And so it's going to be kind of a longer series, and I think it's going to be very, very helpful give you a little bit of a hint. Uh, What does it mean to embrace grace and mercy rather than compulsion and indebtedness? You know, most of us fall into the trap of relating to each other through compulsion or through indebtedness. We put each other in debt. Or what does it mean to love, uh, live out love and a sense of connectedness rather than managing secrets and being separated from each other? even if you're physically together? Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus to, and to have purpose in your life rather than just being codependent with each other and just living by lust? What, it would, what would it look like if we were to engage in confession rather than just gossip? Or what if there was growth and life in our midst, rather than scarcity and death. These are some of the things that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. Embodying the gospel. Okay? Now, today, I want to begin with verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. I have a funny little story about This word, shut up. Um, You know, I'm a dad of four little kids. My oldest one is almost 10. My youngest one is three and a half. And uh, so life is fun and it's full. And we're sort of at that tricky stage when 
um, they're trying to figure out what this world is about and where they're allowed to dip their toes and where they have to sort of keep their toes to themselves. And uh, we were driving. I was driving. My wife was sitting next to me. We have a minivan. And the girls were all in the back row. And uh, that just feels like they're really far away. And we hear this sort of argument uh, spring up uh, amongst them. And then uh, one of the girls shouts up, Dad, Dad, Maddie said a bad word. And I said, oh, what do I do? What is a parent to do? And so uh, I try to lower my anxiety and reactivity. And I said, uh, what, what was the word? And she said, I don't want to say it. I said, well, what did it begin with? She said, S. And I said, how many letters? And she said, four. I said, oh, dear. What do I do? And... Um, and he said, I didn't say it. I was reading a book. I said, what are you reading? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, it's the book, uh, The Little Princess. I said, oh, it is. Well, can you, can you tell me the whole sentence? What was this whole sentence? And she says, the windows were all shut up. <laughs> <clears throat> And Maddie says, she said it again. <laughs> and so now it's become this running joke in the family where if we want the kids to be quiet, we'll just say, the windows are all shut up. <clears throat> so that's what I think about when I see this little phrase, shut up. Okay? In the Greek, it's one word and it just, it's, Mostly used to describe fish being caught in a net. So, so fishermen would throw nets over, over, over the side of a ship and they would gather this fish together and the whole lot of marine life would be caught up together in this net. And nobody, none of them are going anywhere and there isn't a lot of discrimination. It's sort of just everything and everyone within the range of the net is caught up in the net and you're trapped. And that's this imagery. That's the word shut up. Let me go a little bit before verse 2, which, uh, before verse 32, which wasn't read for us. Paul has just, Apostle Paul, who's, who's uh, penning this book, has just talking about the Jews. And he's talking about how the Jews have been so great and perfect in their obedience to the law. And then he says, because of the perfection of their obedience to the law of God, they have failed God. And they have failed in their uh, devotion and their understanding of what the law was all about. And he says, because they were so great at keeping the law, they had no capacity to understand the grace of God. He goes on to explain that what they did was by obeying God so perfectly, they put God into debt. And notice later on, Paul says, who will repay God? Right? This is referring back to when he was explaining all this prior to verse 32. The Jews had said, because we obey these laws, therefore, God, you owe us. We were perfect, therefore, you owe us a perfect life. 
It is the Jewish version of the health and wealth gospel. We have some uh, so-called Christians in our midst who believe if they trust God, if they believe God, now God owes them health and wealth prosperity. Right? This movement is called the Word Faith Movement. And this existed for the Jews as well. And so they failed to understand the grace of God because of their work. Not because they failed in their work, but because they succeeded in their work. And then Paul goes on to say, but that's also a misnomer because not only did they obey so well, but they didn't obey as well as they thought. And so not only did they obey imperfectly, but even in their imperfection, they perceived themselves to have obeyed perfectly. And so Paul is painting sort of a grim picture. This is what Paul is saying. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. If you try hard to obey and you obey really, really well, you're going to put God and others into your debt. They're going to owe you. So if you're a great parent and you sacrifice yourself for the well-being of your kids, you're damned. Because now your kids owe you. They are the byproducts of your hard work. They are no longer free to be who God created them to be. You have to now live vicariously through them. They owe you their life. You own them. So they're damned and you're damned. But it's a misunderstanding. You're basing that whole life philosophy, that worldview, on the fact that you think you obeyed perfectly, that you were a perfect parent. But in reality, you weren't. And so when your kids complain about you, their complaints are legitimate. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And Paul goes on to say, it is impossible then to obey and not trust in your obedience instead of God. And so this is the whole dilemma with works. If somebody lays down the law and you keep the law, if you keep the law, you're damned. Right? Because you're not only going to put God or the one who, put the, who gave you the law into debt, but you're also going to trust in your own sense of obey, obedience. You become somebody who obeys. You would say things like, oh, I'm not the type that breaks the law. Was there a type? In your mind now, there is. How many, have you, how many times have you heard people say, oh, I'm not really the kind of person. What kind of person? All of a sudden, there's these categories in your mind. And you put group A into this category and group B into this category. And it's a bit arbitrary. It's from your perspective. What do we do? We find our identity in the law. We trust in our obedience. We think we obey perfectly, but we really haven't. We make everybody and ourselves miserable. And Paul concludes his section prior to verse 32 by saying morality. Okay, that's my one word for obedience to the law. Morality 
eventually leads not to life as we had hoped, but to damnation. But, he says, through the failure of the Jews' obedience to the law, what it did was it created room for Gentiles. People who didn't have the law of God now can say, look, those people who obeyed God's law so well, they're damned either way. Where is the hope? Where is room for me? And now the Gentiles are able to hear the gospel of grace. And then Paul goes on to say, now you Gentiles think it's all about you, that you, the Jews, were just a means to the salvation of the Gentiles. He says, no, actually, it's the other way around. The Jews were damned in their law so that the Gentiles would get saved through grace, so that the Jews can see that it's by grace. And then the, Gen- and then the Jews say, oh, good, it was for us. He says, no, actually, no, it was for the everybody." has been shut up, Paul is saying, in disobedience. Because as soon as you say, I'm the type of person who doesn't try to keep the law because I'm a Gentile, right? I'm somebody that trusts in God's grace. Now all of a sudden, you're trusting in your trust of God's grace rather than in God's grace. Either you trust the law or you trust in yourself. And you're damned. And so you're all shut up. You're all just marine life, fish caught up in this net together. And then Paul says in verse 32, this was always the plan. There was never, there was never another thought to this. It wasn't like God is thinking, okay, plan A, let's try the law. And I'll pick a group of people that are especially tailor-made to be able to keep the law well. Oh, goodness, they, didn't, they weren't able to keep the law. Well, somebody, some of the people did, but then the people who kept the law, they are now boasting in their hearts and putting people and me into debt. Plan B, let's go to the Gentiles. Okay, now they're trusting in their own trust. So plan C, let's go back to the... That's not God. Paul is saying... This is God's plan all along to save together all at once by grace. And so he says in another uh, verse, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. What time? What is God waiting for? Here Paul explains it. When morality and amorality are exhausted as options. And the obvious question here is, have these options been exhausted for you? What type of person are you? We're so quick to typecast ourselves and others. But that is an expression of our failure to understand then neither morality nor amorality are able to save us. We are together all shut up. We have nothing to say. We have no basis on which to approach God. And this is one of my great sadnesses and frustrations with the Christian faith. Because we claim to be Christians, people who trust in God's grace. 
But really, at the heart of it, we're still trusting in ourselves. We still trust in some form of morality. Or we err the other way, and we categorize ourselves as we're not really the legalistic type. We like to practice freedom in Christ. Well, what does that mean? You miss a Sunday because there's football, or you drink a glass of wine. What, what does it mean to be a freer Christian? You're still trusting in that. There is no type that can save. This is what Paul is saying. That morality and amorality have been exhausted. And it's either by mercy and grace, or it's nothing at all. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. This word ways in the Greek, it's a word that's not just talking about a road. It's not just talking about a kind of person, but it's talking about a pattern. It says literally a pattern or a thinking or a nature or a character of a person. What are his ways? What are the ways of God? What is the nature of God? And Paul says, God's nature, the way he thinks, his pattern of revealing and acting in the world, it's totally unfathomable to us. See, you and I, we can't help but think in terms of kinds of people. Or patterns. We either err on the side of morality or amorality. We don't know how to think a third way. Our patterns are predictable. Our nature, our character, it's so boring. Human beings, we're all just all the same. But God, His ways are unfathomable. It's rich beyond our imagination. When I was studying this verse, I found myself thinking back to an article I had read about our eyeballs and the, the, the miracle of how our eyeballs work. And I've been thinking about this more because I've been in a prayer and conversation with, uh, with a person at the church who's going through some eye stuff. And it just, it just breaks my heart because some of you know my eyes are very bad. I'm myopic. I'm minus 11 in one eye and uh, minus 10 and a half in the other eye with contacts, with glasses, it's minus 13. So it, it's just really, really bad. And so I'm, I'm very sensitive to this eye thing. And this article was saying that most of us are uh, trichromatic. We pick up three colors, basically. And with a mixture of these three colors, we make up the visible spectrum. Now, uh, dogs, on the other hand, are dichromatic. They only have two, they pick up two kinds of colors, black or white, right? There are some human beings, very rare, but sometimes, and they're all female so far, are quadrochromatics. And when you are a quadrochromatic, you don't just see one more color, you see millions of more colors. Can you imagine that? There's a whole world most people don't see. We don't perceive it. It's like being able to see infrared or being able to see heat. That's unimaginable. 
What would the world look like? We don't know. So these quadrochromatic females often are in the art world or in their interior decorators, or they do something having to do with color because they perceive the world so differently. Some animals are uh, pentachromatic. Was that the word? They see five different colors. Whole worlds we can't imagine or fathom. How unfathomable are his ways. We cannot perceive the way we are, the way God is. Because his ways are so different. It's so unknowable by human nature. And this is primarily describing his way of grace and mercy. And so we have verse 34 to 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Who's able to advise him? That's the word advisor. Who can say, God, you know, I was thinking the other day, you think you you should really do this. Have you thought about, have you, nobody can do this. Nobody has ever done this. Verse 35, Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? What do you have that you did not receive? Every time we feel like we're the recipients of a gift from God, you realize there has already been a thousand and one gifts that you have received unbeknownst to you, to be able to receive that gift. Every gift you have ever been conscious of receiving is the end result of a million gifts you've already received without your knowing about it. Even the ability to reach out and receive is itself a gift you've already received. Who can put God into debt? Who from, from whom has God ever borrowed? And I don't want to say this to you, but this is true. God does not owe you anymore just because you came to church today instead of being at home watching the game. This is not a sacrifice to God. God doesn't owe you anymore. This doesn't make you any kind of a better person at all. I'm sorry, that's not where your reward is. And then verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the alpha, that is the beginning. He is the omega, he is the end. He is everything in between. You are literally just a figment of his imagination. If he doesn't imagine you, you're gone. To him be the glory, verse 36 ends. Now, this is, this is really fun. Because when I was first learning about Christianity, I just would think, what is wrong with God? Why is he so insecure? Why does he want my praise and everybody's praise? Why is he so jealous for attention? She's just like an insecure junior high school girl. 
Me, 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 me. Everything is about me. For all of eternity, I'm going to live this hard life and then die so I can go up there to heaven just so I can sing praises to God for eternity? How big is his ego? What a narcissist. And here is another verse. To him be the glory. Why don't he share the glory a little bit? What a glory hug. Right? And then I came to realize. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Meaning, he's not a glory hog. He's not insecure. He's a God of truth. And he would love for me to have some glory. If I actually deserved it. If I was worthy of anything. He's like, take it, Peter. It's yours. Am I going to go to heaven? Be like, God, I did a good job. I got myself here. And if that's the case, praise yourself for eternity, God says. But he's a God of truth. And how abhorrent it would be to give credit to somebody who didn't deserve it. It would make our eyeballs roll. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't we cringe and just be uncomfortable? And God is saying, it's not that I need the glory or that I want the glory, but who is worthy? Whoever is worthy, rise up and sit on the throne. Are you? And then we have verse 1. Verse 1. And verse 1 begins with the word therefore. It just means consequently. And so whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask the question, some of you know this, why is the therefore therefore? Right? Why is the therefore there? And I hate this therefore. I resist This therefore. And this is the whole point that Paul is trying to make about the Jews prior to verse 32. That we as human beings resist grace with all of our might and power. This is the whole point that Paul was making about the Gentiles who were now tempted to boast over and against the Jews who had been labeled as failures. You failed. We succeeded. Why, when they haven't succeeded by their own strength, are they boasting in their success? Because we hate grace. I, uh, uh, my biggest birthday um, was when I turned 29. That was 10 years ago. I'm 39 years old. And when I turned 29, I had a sort of a mini existential crisis. And I bought myself a leather jacket and a sob. And... Uh, Actually, I bought the leather jacket here in Seattle at a Nordstrom Rack, just on a trip vacationing here. And um, it was just, uh, I don't know, I just felt like, and some of you who are older laugh, but I felt like I was getting old. And um, it was a miserable time, uh, you know, just emotionally. I just was bummed out about being 29. And the church that I was pastoring at the time, High Rock, High Rock Covenant Church in Boston, they, they wanted to do something nice for me because they figured out I was a little bummed about this. So they threw a surprise birthday party for me. 
It was really nice of them. I was genuinely surprised. I've never had a surprise birthday party before. It was my very first one, and I hated it. You know why I hated it? Because it was humiliating. Have you ever experienced a surprise birthday party when everybody's been scheming behind your back and you show up and you just experience, you're confronted with all of this love and thoughtfulness and grace and kindness and and you realize in that moment you're dirty. You don't deserve this kind of love. And so the first, my first immediate reaction to that surprise party was humiliation, a sense of unworthiness. You know, uh, the apostle Peter, my namesake, actually has a similar experience. When he's first encountering Jesus, Jesus says, Hey, Peter, I know you've been catching fish all night. You haven't caught anything, but put your net over there. He says, oh, I wouldn't do that normally, but because you say so, I will do it. He casts his net, and he catches this fish that's ripping his net apart. And his first reaction isn't like, wow, it's away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Our response to grace is not embrace, but it's rejection. Because if we require grace, what that means is that we are not good enough. We want some semblance of control, don't we? We want to be able to participate. Whenever we receive, we're so quick to try to give back or not receive fully. I love you. I love you too. Oh, you invited me over for dinner? What can I bring? Oh, you gave me a birthday? Let me write a letter. There's so much politics involved in the giving and receiving amongst human beings because we resist grace. When is the last time you just receive? Just let them just love on you. And you're like, more, more. This is so great. Probably when we were like two, three years old. And by the time we're we're already beginning to reciprocate, We're already beginning to trying to maintain and capture that love so that it keeps coming. Therefore, if God is a God of grace, what does it mean? I don't want to hear this because I don't like grace. It means that I'm no good. I'm not capable of saving myself. I'm not as great as I thought I was. I haven't kept the law as perfectly as I thought I did. And even if I received a little bit of grace, I had something to do with it, didn't I? I have some basis of boasting, don't I? Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, there's that word again that I resist, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This word spiritual here is the Greek word logios or just logical. Right? It's the word where we get the word logic. It's the word, it's the word that just means reasonable. So therefore, if God has shut you up, 
along with everybody else, along with those who obey and those who don't obey. You're all in one category. There is no multiple types. You're not uh, type A or B. You can't qualify yourself or disclaim in any way whatsoever, right? You're guilty. You're not good. You're damned. So that God can save all of you together by His grace and mercy. And you can't fathom this. So just trust Him. Don't try to figure it out. Just receive here. Okay? Got it? Therefore, what? Therefore, what? What do I have to do? The logical, reasonable response is, He says, to give over yourself without being conformed to this world, so that you can prove and attest what the will of God is. Now, I have meditated and studied verses 1 and 2 for years, because I saw it as one of the key verses to helping me to figure out what God's will is, so that I can stay at least one step ahead of God, so that I can bypass the whole trusting in His grace thing, which is the very opposite of the reason Paul puts this in here. Don't you want to know what God's will is? Yeah, you do. So that you can bypass God. So that you don't have to, or at least decrease the level of trust required. I don't want to have to trust. I want to be able to fathom His riches. I want to be able to know the mind of the Lord. What do you mean I can't put God into debt? I came to church on Seahawk Sunday. I know some of you are here taking one for the team so that God would cause the Seahawks to win. He owes you a victory. I want to know what the will of God is. What is it? And he says, the will of God is that you don't get conformed to the world. Which is what? The way of non-grace, the way of works, the way of morality or amorality. That's the mind of the world. God's will is very simple. It's the way that brings him the most glory. Which is the way of his grace. Which is the way of his mercy. But that's unpredictable. And that doesn't seem fair. Wait, we're not talking about fairness because remember, everybody's shut up. There is no fairness. You want fairness? You're dead. It's all mercy. You're alive by His mercy. By fairness, you're dead. And that's the mind of God. That's the will of God that is good and pleasing and acceptable. And then next week, we're going to look at verse 3 and following, which talks about the gifts that God gives to his body by his grace and mercy, which approve and test the will of God, which ultimately we find out in verse 9 is his love for us, is our love for each other. So this leads to some of the ultimate questions about life and about how to live. A couple of statements and questions, and then we're going to end the sermon. Okay? First, serendipity is real. Grace is real. 
believing that God is good and gracious and that he's going to bless you and do good things for you is as logical, right? Logios, as logical as believing that your parents love you, that they want to give you stuff, that love flows down. You don't have to have been a good person. And because you, you got a flat tire in the most inconvenient time doesn't mean you did something bad and God doesn't like you right now. It doesn't mean that. You have to stop thinking in terms of morality and amorality. God's disposition towards us is love. He wants to give you things you don't deserve. He wants to surprise you. That's the will and mind and way of God. And so don't be ashamed. Don't be calculating. Don't feel like, well, I already asked for something. No, just keep on asking. You don't have because you don't ask. So pray, think, wish, feel, whatever for yourself or for others. Don't demand fairness. Who wants justice? Jesus already got that on the cross for us. That's the whole point. Serendipity is real. Okay? Second, we are most happy when we give rather than when we receive. Because we have been created in the image of this God who is the giver of all good gifts. And so we are most naturally ourselves when good things are flowing not to us, but through us. When we are conduits of blessing, when we are being generous with our money, when we are being generous with our time and with ourselves, then we are the happiest. The word blessed in the scriptures is a secular word. It just, it's the word makarios. It just means happy. More blessed to give than to receive. It just means you're happier when you give. And I have four psychology articles. I will not quote secular articles that attest to the fact that we are happier when we give. Third, I'm going to list a bunch of questions for you that we're not going to answer. And this is last. Why are you alive? Why do you have a job if you do? Why do you have family and friends? Why do you have food and shelter and opportunities and resources? Why do you have access to medical care and money? Why do we exist as a church? What's the whole point? What is the therefore answer to these questions? Would you bow your heads with me? God, I, I, uh, I hope it was for them. It was fun for me to go through the verses and kind of study it together and think out the implications. And, um, and I'm not worried about how to live because that's your job too. Not just to show us how we ought to live, but also how to really actually live. So we look forward to your work in our lives and... Um, all the truths that you're going to reveal to our church through this series. And um, thank you for letting us be church together. And Holy Spirit, just keep on working in our midst. 
Uh, we thank you. We love you because you first loved us. We receive your love without shame, without uh, mitigation or uh, 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 without regret, uh, without hesitation. Love on us, we pray in Jesus' name.